Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In this episode, you're going to meet one of the most inspirational football legends of all time, a coach in a small high school in southern Louisiana, and his author, Galen White, is here to talk about Coach of a Lifetime, about Coach Lewis Cook. We have both of those gentlemen on in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And boy, we have a special episode for you tonight. You know, there's those times in football that we'd love to talk about where we find somebody that's very inspirational and just makes the game and the people around them that much better. And we have the subject of that tonight with a, a coach from a small school in Louisiana and an author that uh, wrote an interesting book on him. The author's name is Galen H. White. The name of the book is Coach of a Lifetime, and it's about the story of Coach Lewis Cook Jr. And we have both of those gentlemen on tonight. Uh, Galen and Coach, welcome to the Pigpen. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, Galen, I think we're going to start off with you here a little bit, because I know when I get into a book, I sort of... uh, uh, look at it. I, I look at the cover, you know, I judge a book by its cover, I guess. I look at the cover. I look at the dust jacket, learn a little bit about the author, see who's writing about uh, the subject. And maybe you, for the benefit of the listeners, you could just give us sort of the, uh, the 50 cent tour of, uh, you know, your writing and your association with sports that gets you to the point of, of writing a book on a football coach. I started my career as a sports writer. Denver Post was my first newspaper. Then I went into the corporate world, and so my family could eat. And I stayed in the corporate world for about 40 years. While I was in the corporate world, I became a speechwriter for CEOs at Goodyear, Control Data Corporation, and Eastman, which was then part of Kodak. As um, a speechwriter, I, of course, were around leaders, people who at least were charged with leading. And one of the things I learned is that most people in leadership positions aren't very good leaders. I was once with the uh, chairman of uh, Goodyear and he was contemplating his successor. And he looked at me and he said, Galen, the worst combination in a senior executive is a huge eagle and a thin skin. Now, when I met Coach Cook, I met this very humble man who has uh, one of the best winning percentages in the state of Louisiana. He'll, he'll probably hit 400 wins this year. He's seven wins away from 400. And that's 
that's uh, still with eight years out for coaching in college. He had two different four-year stints at the University of Southwestern Louisiana. I grew up in Los Angeles. One of my heroes as a coach was John Wooden and his pyramid of success. I went to the University of Oklahoma. My first year in college was Bud Wilkinson's last. So those two coaches were sort of my models of what a coach should be. And when I met Coach Cook, there was something about him. There was an aura. He had helped me uh, get Ron Guidry to endorse my pre uh, previous baseball book. All my previous books have been on baseball. Coach played with Ron Guidry at University of Southwestern Louisiana his freshman year. So he helped me connect with Ron Guidry. And as a result of that, uh, we wound up having this one conversation at the last book signing. And I asked Coach a very uh, innocent question. Have you ever thought about doing a book? And someone had started writing a book about him and not completed it, had gone so far as to travel to Tuscaloosa to interview Nick Saban about Coach Cook. He was allotted initially 15 minutes. He was given an hour. The fellow, of course, did not uh, complete the project. And so when I jumped in, I contacted him and said, um, I'd like to use the forward with your permission, but I'm going to have to redo some things. And we'll go back to Nick Saban for his approval, which is what we did. The interesting thing about uh, Saban's uh, forward is that when he approved it, it was two days after LSU upset Alabama last year. <laughs> so I had almost given up having Saban approve the forward because LSU had beaten them. This was late in the season. As it turned out, he approved it, and uh, the rest is history. And it's, and it's great to have – I think it gives Coach Cook a lot of credibility to have Nick Saban, the finest college coach in the game right now, and he still is. I think it's quite a tribute to Coach Cook that Nick Saban has done the forward of the book. And so that's a little background on on me and uh, how I got to do this book. Yeah, that's a absolutely phenomenal story and uh, how you got to meet. Now, Coach uh, no, it's it's very uh, done very well in the book telling uh, about your childhood and what sort of uh, motivated you to and uh, pushed you into getting into the coaching ranks. It's kind of a a, a bumpy story there, uh, but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about you know what was your your first attracted you to uh, athletics and to maybe the game of football as a, as a youngster. Well, you know, uh, we were we were six children in our family. I'm the second uh, oldest. I have a sister uh, older than me. I'm the oldest boy of three boys. We were three boys and three girls. And, you know, my dad was, was in athletics. He, he actually had spent a year on a college basketball team in, in Lafayette uh, during his college days. And, you know, so we were always, you know, kind of uh, encouraged to, to, to play and, from the very beginning, uh, going back to talking to guys that I finished school with, and they'll always say, you know, Louis always was the captain of the guy that organized the games and the teams. And so, you know, I can remember way back uh, just, you know, always wanted to be uh, involved somehow or another. Uh, at 18 years old, I ran the recreation summer baseball program for, the, for our little town in Rain where I grew up. Uh, and organized all the leagues and uh, can remember, you know, having to 
sit with these gentlemen that were 20, 30 years older than I was coaching these, coaching our summer teams and trying to tell them, you know, follow the rules and uh, those types of things. So it, it was something that was always there. You know, the only problem was my dad wasn't too excited about me being the coach. So <laughs> I majored in accounting for three semesters before I convinced him that it wasn't what, what I was here to do and uh, made the switch uh, into the educate, to go into education. And, uh, you know, here in Louisiana at that time, which was 50 years ago, this is my 50th year to coach. You had to, you had to be uh, a teacher uh, for them to allow you to coach. So, uh, you know, I actually taught bookkeeping because I had those, those years and semesters in accounting. So I taught bookkeeping and, and, uh, started off with, uh, you know, right back here in my hometown. First seven years were here in rain. Then I was blessed. Uh, Sam Robertson was the head coach at the University of Southwestern and offered me a chance to go into college football. And I did it for four years, but realized that, you know, I thought I would be better suited and happier in, in high school. Although I did try four more years later on. And, and and result and headed right back to high school. So uh, it it's it's been a, a great journey, you know, for me. Uh, the college having the opportunity to spend those years in college uh, helped me understand the game obviously a lot better. But it made me realize also that I was suited for the kids, high school age kids, to be there for them and you know try to help them prepare, uh, you know, for their future and what they were going to do. Uh, with their lives. Well, no, Coach, uh, tell, tell me, what did you think about this when you, you're at that last book signing, as Galen said, and you have the, this gentleman, it's a writer that comes from the West Coast. He went to Oklahoma, uh, lives yeah. in Tennessee. He's in Vol country. You know, you, LSU, you can't like Vol country. That's a L, uh, SEC you know, rival there. And this guy comes and says he wants to write a book about you. What, what's your first thoughts uh, and your reaction? Well, you know, my wife, uh, Faye, uh, which, you know, we'll have our 50th anniversary uh, in December as well. Uh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. At times, you know, said, you know, following the stories, knowing the kids that I dealt with, and she's been there every step of the way. So uh, would make comments about, uh, you need to put that down. You need to put that in a book. And, and I go, yeah, okay. So. And then I had a secretary, our athletic secretary, Notre Dame, uh, Karen Birkin, was with me for 20 years. And kids would come in, our coaches would come in recruiting, and I knew the coach, and that would lead to a story. Well, how'd you know? She'd say, how you knew him, coach? Or tell me about this kid, you know, that just came to visit. And she'd say, coach, you need to, you need to tell those stories. You need so in the back of my mind, you know, it was there, but it's nothing that I really pursued. Uh, the gentleman that wanted to start doing one at first he and I had actually coached a little bit together in youth baseball so he knew me that way and said coach you have a good story I'd like to try to do it and then it just went away you know we we met just a couple of times and he's he's an attorney you know he wasn't uh at the level where Galen obviously is because you know Galen's pretty high way up on the uh on how to do this so and, and, you know, Galen and I probably had only spent maybe 30 minutes total over the course of the eight or 10 days 
he was here in Louisiana to promote his baseball book that dealt with Crowley, where Notre Dame's located. And uh, it was they had a minor league team in the fifties, and and Galen kind of he featured that league and and Crowley, and that's how we got together. So when he asked me, you know, and he said, you know, coach, something's compelling me to want to do this. Uh, we were coming out of COVID, and uh, I said, Galen, if we could, you know, if if it if you think we could do it where it helps somebody, you know, kind of maybe inspire some young coaches or help people. Uh, he said, you know, I said, I, 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 I'm for it. And he, then he said, well, coach, you know, we, we need to talk to our wives. He said, I'm 900 miles away. I'm 75 years old. I, I don't know that I could do this again. But he said, it's, something's compelling me to want to do it. And he went home and talked to Mary, his wife. And and I told him, I said, well, Galen, you know, if, it, if it's something that doesn't work, yeah, I'm, it's it's not a big deal. You know, I said, I'm, I'm kind of thinking in my mind, Who's gonna read a book about this little high school coach, coach tucked away in South Louisiana? You know, but uh, so anyhow, uh, thank God you know he wanted to do it because I, you know, I think the comments that we've gotten from people already, you know, uh, about after reading it, and well, coach, you know, uh, I called a friend of mine, apologized for something I did, <laughs> you know, I didn't know, you know, they didn't, they don't understand what what all we go through sometimes and, and how we have to you know deal with kids and why this was playing this position, why he's playing that. And, you know, then it, it, it kind of all comes together sometimes. So, uh, but, you know, and coaches at the, my mentor, a guy named Larry Dotrieve, who was a guy that helped me start my career. You know, he called and said, coach, every high school coach should read this book. You know, I was first words out of his mouth after he read it. So, uh, and 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 when the publishers accepted uh, to do the book because they had they had published Galen's first five books on baseball, and but he was told when he when he mentioned this one that it's, you know said Galen we've never done a book on a high school coach, so it wasn't a guarantee that they would do it. And he sent in the he sent all the information in and and when we got the notice late last season we went preparing for a playoff game and Galen pulled up the email that he got and Roman and Littlefield said, we find it to be timely and inspiring. And I looked at Galen, I said, you did it. <laughs> you know, that was what, that was the objective. And uh, they saw it and I said, well, if they see it, others, others may see it also. So uh, here we are. <laughs> yeah, definitely coach. So you said you hope that would inspire coaches out there. Well, I can tell you as a, a former official, you know, the dark side of football is uh, the coaches like to refer to it. Uh, yeah. It inspired me and made me want to be a better person and, you know, emulate some of the things that you're doing because it's, it's fantastic. And, and Galen, you really uh, portray the story very well and using uh, former players and uh, all kinds of people, sec the secretary that the uh, uh, coach talked about. And so some of these people are, are close to coach and, you know, these stories are just phenomenal. So, you know, Galen, where, okay. Now you, you said you had the Ron G Gidry connection with your book. Now, where did you first hear the story uh, of coach and his successes and the empathetic uh, man that he is and uh, the great things that he does for people? The major source for my baseball book was another coach in the area, Richard Pizzolatto. And so coach Piz, they call him, uh, had mentioned coach cook many times 
in our conversations. In fact, at one point, he's quoted in the book as saying <clears throat> that when Coach Cook moved from Crowley High to Notre Dame across town, Coach Biz said he could have moved anywhere in America except across town to Notre Dame. <laughs> That's a rival. Yeah, it is a rival. And, and uh, you get private school, public school. But um, when we sat around and talked about the book, about two weeks prior to that, uh, a very unfortunate incident, one of Coach's players was murdered in downtown Rain, <clears throat> not too far from where Coach lives. It was a senseless killing. Two still haven't come to trial. And for him to come and talk to me even at that point, I mean, he had a crisis to deal with at the school. A young player is trying to cope with the killing of a teammate, <clears throat> a senseless killing of a teammate. And I was struck by that. And then also coming out of uh, COVID and the, and the pandemic, um, I don't want to get political here, but we have a dearth of leadership in this country. And I'm looking, sitting across from this man who has just been through a crisis with his team. He's navigated that situation. He has uh, demonstrated in our conversations that he has some of these other leadership skills. You know, what is a great leader? A great leader understands his people. Coach Cook understands his kids, not just the kids, but the kids' parents, the kids' brothers, because so many of them have come through Notre Dame, the family connections. There's a chapter in the book called Family Ties. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it, it was these qualities of leadership, his humility. Um, Coach Cook is a great storyteller, but his stories are not about him. <laughs> They're about other people. And I decided oh, I'm going to interview these other people and get, you might say, the other side of the story, which I did. Um, what was interesting, and of course, coaching here in the South in Louisiana, and this being a national book, and I wanted it to be uh, uh, national because I think we have a uh, national crisis around leadership. Um, I, uh, I knew that we'd have to deal with the racial situation. I mean, racism is being introduced to everything, things that it has nothing to do with. So I thought, you know, he's coaching at Notre Dame. It's uh, uh, mostly white players. But previously he had coached at Crowley High, and he had a high percentage of black players. And I found his biggest fans were the black players he coached at Crowley High. One of them said he's the closest thing to God with a whistle. Now, you don't get better compliments than that. <laughs> no. Uh, that, that was some of the, the statements that I heard like that said about you, Coach, uh, were just phenomenal. I mean, some of the other ones uh, that said, you know, basically, and I'm going to paraphrase this, that, uh, you know, you are your your ministry is coaching in essence, and because that gets you closer to people, and you get to practice your faith uh, with them. And uh, of course, and and just an editorial note for the listeners: when we're talking Notre Dame here, it's uh, not the university; it's the the high school that coaches at, uh, and, and it's in New Orleans, right? And yeah, it's, it's in Crowley, Louisiana, which is uh, you know we're we're on I ten. Uh, you know, which runs from L.A. to Jacksonville, and we're right in the middle and here in Louisiana. We're, we're probably, we're 65 miles west of Baton Rouge. Okay. But yeah, so we're kind of between Houston and Baton Rouge. I mean, Houston's two and a half hours to the west, but we're right right there. It's a small, Crowley's a town of about 12,000. Our school has 320 kids in, in the school. It's a small Catholic school. And uh, so, but that's, yeah, you know, I was at Crowley High, which was a, 
a larger school. We were 4A in Crowley, Notre Dame's 2A. Uh, I was at Crowley for eight years, which is just a, down the road from uh, from where I am now. And uh, so that that's where, you know, I coached a lot of the, the black players that, that we had were more there. I've had a few at Notre Dame, but not at the numbers that you know, I had at Crowley or even at USL when I coached there, uh, you know, the college kids. Uh, so, but that's, that's where we are. I might add, Darren, yeah. at Notre Dame, uh, of the student body, which is less than 400, 70% of the boys in the school play football. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. They don't have enough for a band. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is, when he went to Crowley High from uh, University of Southwestern Louisiana, they had a 21-game losing streak. And he went in, and the first game they lost with him as head coach. And then five years later, they're playing for the state championship and they win the state title. They wound up going to the Superdome where the state championship games are played three times in Coach uh, Cook's tenure at Crowley High. No other coach has been able to do that at Crowley High. There's a lot of talent there, but no one has been able to harness that talent as Coach Cook. And he comes over to Notre Dame and they're mostly white players. They're mostly sons of crawfish farmers and rice farmers. They're hardworking kids. They have their pickups. He has them out there in the summer practicing their choice at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. Hmm. Uh, I think, Coach, initially you had them at 6 o'clock, and they decided to move it up. Is that right? Right. Yes. Yeah, some of them had to go to work for 8 o'clock, and our our training summer training is about a two-hour session. We go three days a week, and so they were like, Coach, can we come a little earlier? So we bumped it to 5.30. And uh, yeah, it's been, you know, they 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 work really really hard, and uh, so uh, it, that that's kind of been our lifeblood is our the training program that that we have, uh, which it, that's what gives us a chance. We're going to take a break for a moment from this interview and be right back after this message. The memorable moments were many. Franco Harris's immaculate reception, Roger Staubach's hail mary. But the decade's greatest teams were defined by defense. Author Michael McCambridge. Joe Zagorski's podcast, Pro Football in the 1970s, pays homage to a time when defense ruled the gridiron. Soundtrack provided by Horst Hoffman of filmmusic.io. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, this is Del Reed, co-founder of Bill's Mafia and founder of 26shirts.com, where behind every shirt there is a story, and you are listening to the Pigskin Dispatch. And now we return to our interview with our special guest. Notre Dame is a pipeline to life, not to Tier 1 football team or the NFL. At, uh, at Notre Dame, he's only had one player go on to play in the NFL. It's Tyler Shelvin, who started last year. He was with Cincinnati Bengals. I think he's on the Tennessee Titans roster now. Now, Crowley High, Orlando Thomas is probably the best-known player to go on and play in the pros. He was an all-pro safety with the Vikings and unfortunately came to a tragic end with Lou Gehrig's disease. But his relationship with Orlando was a father-son relationship. And the title of the book, Coach of a Lifetime, comes from a statuette that Orlando gave Coach. Uh, Coach wouldn't take anything else from him. Uh, Orlando... Signed a contract for over $2 million initially, and then later on, an $11 million contract. 
Orlando wanted to do something special for Coach. Coach Cook said, save your money. And Orlando gives him this statuette and it says, thanks for your support, love, honesty, and friendship. So the title of the book comes from Orlando Thomas, one of his players, who he had a black player, had a father-son relationship with story that you tell and you you sort of start the the book with uh, alluding to us and give us some foreshadow on Orlando and then you have a whole chapter later on in the book and it's really you know it's heart-wrenching it's it's a it's a love story of of a, a two people you know a coach loving uh, a man of a, a that plays for him and then loving him all the way through to his successes and to through his whole life until you know his his demise with that that uh, disease and it sort of took him away but it's it's remarkable that the the number 42 had some special significance to orlando and uh maybe uh you can talk about that yeah I'll, I'll, so orlando thomas at at crowley high he wore number 13 at at university of southwestern louisiana and coach uh wound up coaching there his second stint was he was the offensive coordinator at USL, and Orlando was there at that time. He wore 42 there. Uh, his father died at the age 42. When Orlando was drafted in the NFL in 1995, he was the 42nd pick. When Orlando died in 2014, he was 42, same age as his father. So that number, and, and, and to me, it, it, what's significant about it, when you think of the number 42, you think of Jackie Robinson. When you think of Jackie Robinson, you think about courage and you think about uh, perseverance. Orlando battled Lou Gehrig's disease for 10 years. The normal life expectancy with Lou Gehrig's disease is less than five, four to five years. So he went 10 years. And at one point when they thought he might die at age 41, he hung on a little longer. So he got to 42. But I mean, that, that's uh, Orlando was when I heard the Orlando story. Uh, the first time uh, that's one I thought that one has to be told in a certain way I want I wanted to, to uh, hit this father-son relationship because it's not just with Orlando there's another uh, uh, one of his players went on to Texas A&M Shane Garrett you know he uh, refers to, he sees coach Cook as a father figure one of his other players went on to Louisiana State uh, Wes Jacob Coaches with him now. He calls him Pops. <laughs> and those are all black players. And that was, it's remarkable to me. You know, in this era of racist this, racist that, you got people who see each other's heart, not the color of their skin. And to me, that's, a, that's something that more people uh, need to do and more people need to know about. And that's what makes Coach Cook's so special. Yeah, he has so many qualities of a leader. I could go on. But, uh, you know, he has a has a great sense of humor, and I think that comes out in the book. <clears throat> I'll let Coach tell the story with uh, Jake DeHolm when he was a freshman. You know, Jake DeHolm was supposed to be redshirted. But Coach, uh, uh, well, when the guy they had pegged for number one threw three interceptions in the first half and his backups each threw one, well, it's Jake's turn. So Coach uh, – Later in the season, uh, Jake was uh, being treated a little bit with kid gloves because he was a freshman and having a great year. He wasn't doing so well in practice. So I'm going to let Coach uh, <laughs> say what happened. You know, we recruited Jake. He was out of a, a small high school, a Catholic high school in Lafayette. Now now they're much bigger. But, uh, you know, as we got into August practice, I kind of thought that 
we needed to have Jake ready to go in case the the guy we thought we could win with went down. I, I didn't think the other backup guys could handle it. I was offensive coordinator. I was coaching quarterbacks. And uh, our head coach, Nelson Stokely, whose son Brandon went on to have a 13-year career in the NFL, uh, you know, he 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 had every intention of redshirting Jake. Jake, you know, he wasn't the biggest guy. Uh, he was still growing, maturing. Uh, but but Jake had some special qualities as well. So as Galen said, that we opened the season. This was the '93 season, a home game, conference game. We just moved into the Big West Conference, and we were playing Utah State. And uh, our number one has three interceptions in the first quarter. Coach says, "Get him out." Number two goes in, gets picked off. Coach tells me, "Get him out." <laughs> number three goes in and. We end the half with a fifth interception. I was so embarrassed. And we get in the coach's office, and the head coach is already sitting in there waiting for me. And he asked me, what are we going to do? I said, Coach, we got to go with Jake. And kind of slammed his hand on my desk. And he said, I told you we're going to redshirt Jake. <laughs> I said, we don't – for who, Coach? <laughs> I said, if we don't win this year, we might not get to coach him at all. But uh, so anyhow, Jake took the first snap of the second half and took every snap for the next four years. For for you, I went on, and if, if you remember, led the Carolina Panthers to the Super Bowl one year. And uh, But as Gator was referring to, Jake was having a bad day one day. And, you know, I guess maybe that whole week was bad because I was, you know, and I finally told Jake, I said, Jake, we went to Huddling. I said, Jake, if the, if the cops come to your house tonight to arrest you for murder, just plead guilty. Cause you're killing me, and evidently I died. <laughs> but they'll get you for attempted murder for sure. But uh, so Jake laughed, and uh, you know he great. He talked about a great kid there, uh, Jake. Man, what you know, what a job he did for us, and uh, it's it's proven. You know he was undrafted, hung around. The Saints had him in the back of their roster, and finally got to Carolina and showed what he could do. And yep. almost won that Super Bowl too. He took took yeah, the, well, it went far the gutsy performance for sure. So that, the uh, the incident that coach refers to, uh, you know, Jake says of that that was Louis Cook's way of dog cussing. <laughs> <laughs> he has that magic, that charm, that way you can feel it. It kind of oozes from him. I never felt so bad for letting somebody down, and that's the thing about Coach Cook. You didn't want to let him down. And that's that's what he that's what the players for him feel. They feel this attachment to him. They they know that coach is looking after them. That they are number one. It's not the winning; it's the kids first. And coach will tell you he hardly ever mentions winning. He teaches life lessons at the end of a practice. You know, he'll talk about uh, the dangers of smoking. He'll talk. One of the chapters is called uh, "Nothing Good Happens After Midnight." One of his other favorite sayings is leave no stone unturned. And I thought in doing this book that I had done that. And then I find out one day uh, at the book is out and I'm walking across the practice field with him. And I noticed coach isn't wearing sunglasses. And I noticed that he had never worn sunglasses. And so I asked him about it. He said, no, I don't even own a pair. I want to look him in the eyes and I wanted them to see my eyes. That's the kind of, of um, authenticity that he has as a coach. And that's why he's a, a great leader. And that's why, too, in developing, and one other point, 
in doing this book, I didn't necessarily come in with this point of view, but I developed this point of view. And that is the greatest coaches are not at the professional or college level. Those guys are managing talent. It took another player to point this out to me, but they're managing talent. Coach is developing talent. He's taking what God has put in this area where he lives, and he's developing that talent beyond what their capabilities would be without him. And so there's a significant difference. So when you think about high school coaches, they're developing these kids, these raw talents. They're not managing talent because a lot of these kids don't have that much when they first uh, start to play in high school. So uh, that's a that's a significant difference. And I think that's one of the things that is in his heart to develop that talent. And it ties in, too, with his uh, core beliefs, which are the three Fs, faith, family, and football. And if you look at his going back to high school coaching, what did he do? He came back to coach his sons. Hmm. So he's lived those core beliefs. And that's why I did this book on a high school football coach. At the time when uh, the publisher said, we've never done a book on a high school football coach, I didn't quite have all that answer. I do now. That's one of the things that I took out of the book is just some of these uh, things, coach, that you uh, say things to people in a way and you communicate in a way where you turn a little switch on inside of them. Uh, we mentioned earlier, you know, your your first year at Crowley and you, you weren't sure if you were going to take the job and finally you did. And you walked the halls one day and saw a rather large individual that uh, wasn't playing uh, football. And uh, I believe you had a little conversation with him about uh, some LSU coaches. Maybe if you could talk about that a little bit, just to show that communication. Yeah, there was a key. He's actually on the basketball court. I was watching practice and he's six, four is about two forty five at the time. And so I asked, I hadn't actually hadn't taken the job yet. I was, uh, on the verge of deciding whether to go or not. And I asked some of the coaches that were there, and I said, what is he playing football? So, Coach, he doesn't play football. I thought to myself, well, no wonder they've lost 20 straight games. <laughs> they got this guy, a good-looking athlete. <laughs> so we had a conversation. I, uh, you know, I'm coaching in college at the time. I'm at USL, and I said – his name was Tracy Boyd. And I said, Tracy, uh, introduce myself. And I said, have you heard – do you know Dale, who Dale Brown is? Of course, Dale Brown was basketball coach. Everybody knew Dale Brown in Louisiana. Oh, yes, sir. I know. I said, how about Bill Ornsbarger? That's when Bill Ornsbarger was head coaching. No, I've never heard of him. I said, well, I'm not trying to knock your basketball talent. I said, but you do play center. You're the post player on the basketball team. I said, there's no 6'4 centers in the SEC. I said, Dale Brown probably had walked out of here in 10 minutes. I said, Bill Ornsbarger would be still sitting there like I am wanting to talk to you about football. So I said, I may be the coach here when we come back from the Christmas break. And I said, I'd like for you to consider playing. And um, so when we had our first meet, I took the job, had our first meet. He was sitting in the front row. So uh, Tracy went on. Here's a kid that wasn't going to play high school football. Played, played. uh, I I got, when I went back to, Coach at USL for my second stint, Tracy was just finishing up his college days. And I had a scout, uh, a pro scout come in to find me, to ask me about Tracy Boyd. And he said, the guys told me you could help me with information about Tracy Boyd. I said, yeah, I just 
I see. Just sent him to Elizabeth City College in North Carolina for his last year. I mean, played at Elizabeth City State College. And uh, said, Coach, he ran the fastest time of any lineman. By now, he was 6'6". He weighed 300 pounds. And he ran the fastest time of any lineman at the combine. So here's wow. a kid wanting up in high school football. <laughs> Drafted by the – played for the Patriots, played for Seattle, had a couple of years in the Canadian Football League. And, uh, you know, so he, he – he, he, but he had talent. <laughs> you know, he had some ability. And, uh, you know, fortunately, he decided to come out and play for us. <laughs> now, another one of those uh, little stories that uh, th- this is classic. I'm going to remember this one forever. <laughs> there, there's a part in the book, Galen, where you write that, uh, you know, one of the players on coach's team, and I'm not sure if it, I think it might have been for Notre Dame, uh, gotten a little bit of extracurricular uh, activity after the play, let's say, ended up getting a penalty flag thrown. 15 yards goes against your team coach. And, uh, You've huddled them up. You must have had a timeout or something. And you told that player that uh, was the offender, you said, hey, uh, you're going to call the next play because I don't have anything for third and 25. I, I about lost my, myself on that one. That was, that was classic. So that was David Bergen, and he's the son of Karen Bergen, who was uh, Coach's longtime assistant. And you might want to tell a little bit what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They got in a little scuffle after, and, of course, we get the penalty and then you know, I jumped in pretty good, but in my mind, I'm going like, good, good boy, David, don't back down. <laughs> you know? Now, David was a 4.0 student, went on to play football at Rice University. He's now an orthopedic surgeon uh, in Treeport, Louisiana, and uh, just one of the finest kids that I've ever coached. Uh, they lived one way. It, it took him at least 40 minutes to get to Notre Dame from their farm where they lived. And like I said, Miss Karen, his mom drove every day uh, to be to be our secretary, and uh, never missed an early morning workout in four years. Uh, just a super kid, but yeah, I kind of was trying to make a point with him, you know, that you hurt the team when that happens. But in the back of my mind, I was kind of glad it was a scrimmage, so it wasn't that crucial. But uh, you know that that we weren't going to back down. Uh, that that I was in a way, kind of glad to see that. But I had to make a point that it does hurt the team, and you call this play because I don't have one on my script for 30-25. <laughs> he, he probably didn't do anything like that again the rest of the season, I'm sure. <laughs> well, no, he, he, he did. And, of course, his mom jumped in worse than I did after it was over with. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was a heck of a player. But, you know, you talk about, you know, he became a, a surgeon. Uh, you know, I'm. You have, there's a quote in there that uh, Galen puts in there that uh, somebody said that uh, you've put more, you put some players in the NFL, but you've put even more people in heaven. And, you know, you, you look at this, you, you have doctors uh, besides football players and professional football players, uh, Catholic priests uh, that have come out of your program. And a lot of them, according to the quotes that Galen has in the book, are attributing to some of that to, to you and your your teaching and your uh, example that you, you led by. So that's, that's quite high honor, sir, to, to have somebody say yeah, that. You know, we, yeah, we had a young man that was uh, ordained a priest. And, and uh, just before he was ordained, he, he came to visit. And I, I, I didn't think about it till he told me, but... Uh, you know, and he used it in his first homily uh, once he was ordained a priest. He said, you know, I'm a sophomore football player. It's our first day, and Coach gathers us up, gathers all the team up, 
to talk about goals. And coach says, now look, y'all realize, you know what you the ultimate goal. And he says, I'm thinking, go to the dome, play for the championship. I want to be like some of the guys that had gone ahead of him that had played in one championships. And he says, then coach says, your ultimate goal is to get to heaven. He goes, it, it just kind of knocked me back. <laughs> and he <laughs> said, the whole time I was going through the seminary, I kept hearing that, you know, coach, our goal is to get to heaven. So, yeah, he used it in his first homily. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, we've had some great kids come through there. And, uh, you know, we have four of them that uh, have played in our athletic program that are ordained priests now. And, you know, we have officers, officers in the military and guys heading up all field service companies because, you know, all industry is big down here. And, uh, you know, electrician. You know, that's, when Galen asked me, he goes, Coach, the first when we first when we talked about the book, he said, "Coach, you've done this for almost fifty years. What what is it that about coaching that's kept you in it?" And that's when I made. I said, "What other profession is there that you can uh, you have all these young men that go into every walk of life?" And uh, that's when I said, "You know, I have, you know, you have doctors, you have accountants, teachers, coaches, military personnel, and priests, and so it's it's you know, and that." You know, that's the reward in coaching is, uh, you know, financially, you know, you're not going to make it, you know, you're not going to get rich as a high school coach here in Louisiana. And I, and I know my dad, you know, was only looking out for my best interest. His best friend had a large CPA firm and I was going to go to work for them. You know, it was all cut. Go get your degree, go to work for Mr. Moody. He's going to take, you know, you're taking great care of me. We we're real close to that family and, uh, you know, and my dad said, you know, Louis said, you know, coaching is a no win. He said, you, if you win the game, people are going to say you should have won by more or you should have played. Why this kid didn't play or, you know, or why didn't you, why didn't you win the game? You should have done, but he never saw the, you know, he was, he, he, you know, he owned a car dealership. And so he never was, <laughs> saw the side of that to see these kids go on and be successful successful in life and know that you know you may have had some little small part in aiding them to get to where they got it and that's that's where the reward comes fantastic now galen you you write a little bit about what coach is saying uh you about some of his interaction of parents coming in displeased that uh you know little johnny or you know mike is not getting a playing time and maybe galen you could tell us a little bit about what you've experienced uh, or heard about with coach doing Coach is a straight shooter, <clears throat> and uh, he says what needs to be said, but he has a way of saying it. It's like Jake DeHome say. He has a way of dog cussing you or in presenting something to you in a way that it's kind of an aha moment for you. And so he, he Karen Birkin, uh, his administrative assistant, was the one who said how many times she saw parents walk into his office, and they were upset when they came in, and they were laughing when they came out. <laughs> and that's a gift. I mean, these these some of the qualities he has uh, are gifts. Julia Scott, who uh, a Texas football coach, actually he uh, he was connected with Johnny Manziel, wasn't he, Coach? Yeah, Johnny uh, Manziel's high school coach, right? And so Julia Scott uh, traveled around the country interviewing successful coaches on what is a successful coach. And uh, you know, when he said to me this quote. You read about Mother Teresa of Calcutta. They say that when you talked with her, 
she looked at you like you were the only human being in the world. That's the way Coach Cook makes you feel. Now, Julius went on to say one day, he said, uh, he was talking about Coach Cook, and he said, and how he handles different situations in a game. He said, Louie, I think you coach like Jesus would have coached. And, of course, Coach Cook, humble as ever, I don't know about that, but I'd like to know what he would have called on third and one the other night when we got stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Going to use some help. <laughs> yeah. Or the third and 25. He probably yeah, yeah he's still working on that. <laughs> still working. Yeah. So, so, Coach, you had an uh, interesting background. You know, Before you got into coaching, you were wearing a striped shirt out on the football field. Now, how has that helped you in uh your interactions with officials because we you know a lot of people see the interactions of officials and coaches and you know they they see the bad it's not i mean i can tell you from the officiating standpoint i had a lot more fun times and laughs with coaches on the sideline when i was a sideline official than i ever had arguments uh, but it's a there's an animosity there there's it's a, a no-win situation for for either one of them you know one coach is going to be happy one's going to be upset uh yeah. on, on every play so how's that helped you where being on both sides of that yeah you know, I would have loved to have played college football because uh, I love playing the game. But, you know, I was 5'6", 140 pounds when I came out of high school. And I joined the Area, the area Officials Association because I thought that would be a way to stay close to the game and learn and, then, and learn that side of it, you know. And uh, and it, it makes me have uh, more of an appreciation uh, for the officials, having done it for five years while I was in college. You know, Galen will tell you, he's on the sideline with us. We don't berate the officials at all. You know, we we we'll have a conversation, we we'll talk. You know, I'm not a good enough coach where I can coach a game and and try to officiate it and yell at the officials the whole time. I I don't know how some of those guys do that where they every play they yell at, you know, and, and I don't I can't uh, I'm not a good enough coach to be able to do that. But I know you know I know what I went through when I was an official, and uh, so I I. And it's like you said, you know, the, pe- the people have no idea. I, I, I was listening to a game on the radio one night, a local local radio station. I knew the guy calling the game. And there was a situation in the game where a punt was blocked, but the team punting picked the ball up and ran it forward. It, it, it was blocked behind the line. And so the punting team picked it up and ran and made a first down. They got beyond the chains. Where they – couldn't understand how they still maintained the ball. The punt got blocked. They were berating the officials for so I, I texted the guy on his phone. I explained to him what happened. And so he he told the story and apologized for for uh, call, you know calling out the officials over the air. But you know, like you say, uh a lot of them don't understand the coaching side of it. Why are you running this or why are you running that? I'm I've had a lot of people sometimes they go, you know, Coach, why'd you run that play? I said, well, I thought it was going to work. I said, if I knew it wouldn't have worked, I wouldn't have called it. <laughs> you know, or they'll 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 want to say, well, the officials cost us a game. I mean, in 50 years, there, there were a couple of games that the, the outcome, you know, was determined by, you know, poor fish, a call. Like last year, last year we lost a game. Uh, team, we were up. By a point or two, the team made a first down uh, at the two-yard line. The clock stopped for the first down, okay? 
They moved the moved the box. There was only four seconds on the clock. They instead of spiking the ball, which they had time to run, you know, line up spiking, they ran their field goal unit out. Well, you you can't get a field goal unit out, and it was on the far hash, all the way to the two yard line, and the and the referee held the clock until they snapped the ball, hmm. and eighteen seconds had run off had run off the clock, the play clock. And so that's a game that we really should have won. You know, that's one of a few, very few games that were ever decided, you know, by by administra- an administrative move by the official or maybe a call that uh, affected the game. So, uh, you know, that's why I, I, I don't want to blame the officials either because it gives the kids an excuse sometimes. You know, they, they, they want to – no, the reason we lost because we didn't play well. It was – it had nothing to do with the calls, you know, but sometimes, you know, it's easy to point the finger at somebody else always, you know, and so, but I, I enjoyed it. If I hadn't gone into coaching, I'd have stayed officiating because, you know, I really enjoyed doing that. And, uh, and, and it, it was, like I said, it was a learning experience for me as well. Uh, I'm sure. Now, Galen, uh, why don't we take this opportunity? Why don't you uh, go ahead? Let's tell the name of the book again, uh, your publisher, and where folks can get a copy of it at. Coach of a Lifetime, published by Roman and Littlefield. You can order it directly from Roman, the publisher. It would be www.roman.com. Or you can go to galenwhite.com and order the book from us there. Uh, All proceeds from books ordered on my website. All proceeds go to uh, an Notre Dame uh, coaches uh, setting up a fund to pay some of the uh, non-faculty coaches who work for dirt. <laughs> they don't make much is to pay them a little more. And that's, that, that to me is uh, the kind of guy he is. I mean, he's, he's got a servant's mentality and is, is uh, son who coaches with him. Uh, Lou the third has the same way. He has a servant's mentality. And when you have that in a coach, that is a tremendous example. In fact, one of the black players, one of my favorite stories was this black player. He was a good ball player, a good kid, and he's a minister now of two black churches in Crowley. And one day, Coach, you tell the story about what was happening. Well, his name's Gerard Joseph, and like Gideon said, he's uh, become a, a minister. He's a preacher and, and, and actually runs two churches now. But we went in the huddle one day, and uh, we broke the huddle. We ran a play, and he never came out of his stance. And he was a good kid, you know. And we got back in the huddle, kind of had his head down, and I lifted up his face mask, and I go, sure, that can't be you in there. That's that's not you. You know, I said, well, you know, what's up? And he just kind of hung his head. So I had him come in my office after after practice, and I said, sure, you know, what's up? He goes, Coach, I don't think anybody cares about me anymore, you know. And so we talked and, uh, you know, I, I look at it and I tell young coaches, I said, you know, I could have gone and kicked him in the seat or jumped all over him. You know, why, you know, who knows? I mean, good Lord steps in a lot of time, but so anyhow, it, it, we had a great conversation. He got, and so we made it to the championship game that year. And the first touchdown of the game was a, Touchdown pass, a corner route by Sherard Joseph from his tight end position for a touchdown, you know. And so I'm like, you know, had I gone crazy and he walked away, because who knows what would have happened, the state he was in that day, then then 
we lose a good tight end. He loses great experiences of finishing the season in the championship game. And, uh, you know, who knows where, but not, like I said, now he's, you know, he's very respected minister in Crowley. In fact, um, in the book, I quote him as saying that his uh, son, wants, and he's Baptist, he wants his son to play for Coach Cook at Notre Dame. So, hey, there's no <laughs> religious, you blur the lines when, <laughs> when those kind of things happen. That, that's fantastic. Uh, gentlemen, we're we're out of time here, but I really appreciate uh, you both coming on here. And uh, Galen, for you telling this wonderful story of, of football and an inspirational story. And Coach, for you being that inspiration to not only your players and the people around you and uh, your your writer friend is sitting right next to you, uh, but, but your family and now your family across the nation and the world that, uh, that Galen is, is sharing your story with of this book. And uh, I, I'll forever remember some of these quotes and some of these stories you had because they're very inspirational. And I think the listeners will too. And I'm sure they'll be able, wanting to pick this copy of this book up and, and listeners, you know, Galen called out some, uh, uh, some URLs and some things, places to get the book. We'll put those in the show notes of the podcast. If you're driving, don't try to write it down or anything. We'll get you there to Galen and uh, Roman Littlefield to, to get the, this great book. It's also on Amazon. Everything's on Amazon. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it's it's uh, one last comment. It's been a real blessing to write about Coach Cook, and I hope that blessing is conveyed to the people who read the book. If you are blessed by this book, then I've done my job. Yeah, I think you have, sir. So both both of you. So so thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Dad. Appreciate thank it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. We're taking a peek over at the chains in the down marker. It's fourth and long. We're going to have to punt the ball and get on out of here, but we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines, so be sure to tune in. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleat Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that. 
Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.